you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Rosemary's Baby. We're talking about it with our great friend, Sarah Archer. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Rosemary's Baby is a 1968 American psychological horror film written and directed by Roman Polanski and is based on Ira Levin's 1967 novel of the same name. The film stars Mia Farrow as a young and soon pregnant wife who comes to suspect that her elderly neighbors are members of a satanic cult and are grooming her in order to use her baby for rituals. Sarah Archer is a design and culture writer based in Philadelphia. Her books, The Mid-Century Kitchen, Mid-Century Christmas, and Catland, The Soft Power of Cat Culture in Japan, are all available now from Countryman Press. Sarah was also on an episode of You're Wrong About last year, an episode about Martha Stewart, which was a big fan favorite. And uh, so if you haven't heard that and you listen to this episode and you're like, I need to hear more Sarah Archer, you can hear her talk Martha Stewart on You're Wrong About. How's it going out there? How's it going in your lives? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what's happening in your world. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram, both at you are good pod. Uh, we like hearing from you. So let us know what's happening in your world. Don't forget that you, my friend, are good. So in case you're wondering what's going on in our lives, uh, You're Wrong About is about to go on tour in March, April, and May. You'll be able to see Sarah on stage in a number of different cities and uh, friends of You're Wrong About as well. And also Carolyn Kendrick, our beloved Carolyn Kendrick, will be singing some songs up there on stage. So... The You're Wrong About 2023 Spring Tour will be going to Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, Toronto, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Philly, Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., Boston, Burlington, I should say Burlington, Vermont, because someone has asked about that, and Montreal. So if you are in one of those places, be sure to check out tickets to that tour, which you can find linked in our show notes. These are fun. You'll probably see me walking around trying to manage stuff and make sure things are going smoothly. Uh, If you go, you might see me at a merch table. I'm the tall guy. So if you do see me, be sure to come up and say hello. I love uh, I'd love to meet you. Love to meet you in real life. And speaking of live shows, I am doing this thing with my friend Woody Sticks. Woody has been on the show before talking about Harriet the Spy. This is how Woody and I met, really. But I, I love Woody. Woody's going to be on a future You Are Good talking about waiting for Guffman. And we're doing the show called Steady Bad Luckers. It is not a podcast. It is just a live show. Uh, we're doing it in San Diego. We're doing it in San Francisco. And we're doing it in Los Angeles. And we're doing it in March. You can find a link in these show notes for more information. It's going to be funny. It's basically just these two people. Woody's got a lot of stage experience. I've got a little bit of stage experience. We're describing it as a mashup of Mr. Rogers and Pee Wee's Playhouse in energy and vibe. And basically the whole thing is one of us tells the other about a lovable or maybe not entirely lovable loser from our respective professions. And we trade turns doing exactly that. There'll be slides. There'll be jokes. It'll be a lot of fun. So If you are in San Diego, if you are in Los Angeles, or you're in San Francisco, check out the link in the show notes. We're doing these shows in the middle of March. We would love to see you there. Come out and see us talk about our favorite steady bad luckers. 
You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Thank you. Thanks for helping make this whole thing possible. Thanks for helping get our staff paid for just making a show. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we're artists, we're writers, we're performers, we're all of these things. We work in arenas where it's not always so easy to get paid for doing cool stuff. So we appreciate that you help make that happen. In exchange for your financial support of the show, you get access to bonus episodes. This month's bonus episode is about Sex and the City. Sarah and I talk about season one of Sex and the City. It's great for Sex and the City fans. And I think even if you're not a Sex and the City fan, you have two friends talking about a thing that they enjoy. Um, One thing that Sarah really enjoys and something that I'm very new to. But it was a lot of fun to have that conversation. And I am excited to share it with you. And this episode is made possible with support from Queer Candle Company. It is a small batch soy wax candles. They are hand poured with love. They are a queer and trans owned business. The candles are topped with a variety of botanicals, including pressed flowers, dried herbs, and zested aromatics. I'm a big candle person. Um, I don't know when this happened. I always have been. <laughs> I've been like a big candle person since I was 12 years old, but I just love them. I love, ca- I love candles of all sorts of scents. We have many going in our house at any given time. And I just ordered a teak and leather candle from Queer Candle Company because you can't ever have enough candles as far as I'm concerned. And uh, my house is proof of that. <laughs> They are donating 10% of monthly profits to the Sylvia Rivera Law Project and Queer Candle Company sells DIY refill kits online, so any candle is endlessly refillable. Use show code YOUARGOOD at checkout, all one word, all lowercase, to get 10% off your first order. So find yourself some great candles at QueerCandleCo.com or on Instagram and TikTok at QueerCandleCo. Thank you so much for supporting this episode, Queer Candle Company. We appreciate you. All right, before we get into the episode itself, uh, a number of content warnings, both with regard to what we talk about in the context of the movie itself that includes uh, rape and it includes uh, this just control over Rosemary that takes place throughout the entire movie and she's gaslit the entire time. And that itself is extraordinarily unsettling. We talk a lot about why that was relevant then, why it continues to be relevant, what this movie has to say about uh, reproductive justice and why that is incredibly relevant what this movie has to say about bodily autonomy, what it has to say about patriarchal control. We talk about all sorts of things that have real world roots that are themselves unsettling. And the text of the movie is unsettling in a lot of ways. And then we talk about all of that in the context of Roman Polanski, which adds another layer of uh, uh, an unsettling dynamic to the conversation. So I just want you to know that going in, if you are not up for any of that chat right now, totally understandable. We have other episodes for you to listen to that aren't this one that don't require an episode wide content warning. Just know that this is delicate subject matter and we always try our best to handle it as delicately as we possibly can. We want to make this a place where these conversations can happen, but they aren't, you know, and they are obviously challenging, but they aren't necessarily uh, scary or you don't have to worry about people making crass points just for the sake of making crass points. That's not what we do here. So just know all of that going in. All that said, let's go talk about Rosemary's Baby.
Hello, Sarah Marshall. Shamham Farash, Alex Steed. Very good. I'm always curious about what we're going to get there. <laughs> and that was wonderful. Sarah, uh-huh. tell me, have you uh, seen any good movies lately? <laughs> Well, Alex, this is my place to say that not in the theater I haven't, because I went and saw Knock at the Cabin the other night, a movie whose message, if it has one, is that gays should kill each other if internet conspiracy theorists ask them to. So I don't know what to do with that. But speaking of the toast of Philadelphia, rather than something that rhymes with toast but is bad. Today we're talking about Rosemary's Baby with Sarah Archer, one of my favorite movies. Ooh la la. Sarah, hello. Hello. It's so nice to be here. It's lovely to have you. And why, why, why when we talked with you about uh, movies that you would like to discuss, why is Rosemary's Baby one that uh, came to your brain? That is a great question. Well, it's one of my faves. I think it holds up over time, even the apartment holds up. Mm. I mean, my God, right? It's like you could put that on the market, you know, in a magazine now and it would look perfectly on point. <laughs> but more to the point, I think it is so prescient about questions of control, reproductive mm-hmm. control and a general sense that patriarchy and kind of like the natural food movement are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> and like quite the contrary. Some, some we're learning in the past few years, they kind of, they can go hand in hand. There's essential oils are kind of where the two extremes meet. And this push pull between feminism and like trusting the science and listening to your body and rejecting corporate interests, this kind of stew of influences that we find ourselves in. This movie really, it puts you in the center of that or puts Rosemary in the center of that. And I think, you know, they couldn't have predicted the future, but they kind of (laughs) did in a way. Well, it's funny because like I've seen this movie many times. I watched it for the first time when I was 13. And I remember having just this feeling of like, I wasn't jump scared I wasn't, I didn't get the effect of like what I expect a horror movie to be, having enjoyed my like late 90s tween lifestyle. But it just, it gives you like a feeling of creepiness that gets under the skin and doesn't dissipate. But watching it this time, this is the first time since last October when I finally watched House on Haunted Hill. And I feel like this is Roman Polanski who we will talk about and how he's, Mm -hmm. yes, of course, a rapist and Mm -hmm. apparently is like using his expertise in this movie to talk about that, I guess. To me, this is Polanski effectively saying like, this is my haunted house movie. It's a new kind of haunted Mm. house movie. And that this movie is happening like in the period, like after the end of, you know, the kind of, classic William Castle gimmick haunted house Tangler movies. Although this movie is produced by Castle, I think. Yes, it is. That's totally being like, all right, William, step aside. That's my (laughs) Polanski accent. You know, and this movie is happening effectively like after the end of the kind of Vincent Price era and before we've developed the modern vocabulary of horror films as we know them. And I think that also makes it scary because it doesn't contain cliches. 
watching this movie, knowing everything we know about Roman Polanski, but then watching how, and obviously he's working with some great source material by Ira Levin and seeing how astute this movie is about Uh how trapped Rosemary is in this situation. It was difficult more than normal uh, Uh with regard to like wrapping your head around uh, Roman Polanski and his artistry and what he has uh, done and what his personal life has been Uh and the damage he's wrought. It was, it was, yeah, I'll be thinking about the relationship between him, Rosemary's baby and his life for a long time. I think what's weird about it is that it, to me, communicates the idea of like, yeah, I know I'm doing these things. Mm. Yeah, clearly, like part of the mystique of this movie, too, is that people find it so creepy. I was a 13 year old who read this on IMDb and found this so creepy that this film was shot at least using the exteriors of the Dakota where John Lennon was assassinated in 1980. I mean, outside, directly outside of which anyway. And Roman Polanski, the director, was married to Sharon Tate, who was murdered by the Manson family when she was pregnant with their baby. And the Manson family were Satanists? Question mark. And mm-hmm. like, if you're a dumb 13 year old, as we all were at some point, some of us for many years, it can feel like, yeah, like it's this movie about Satan and the 20th century is so scary and there's all these murders. And what if this did kind of like bother Satan and and he, you know, killed Roman Polanski's wife and baby. And then as an adult, you're just like, no, the weird, the creepy thing is that this is a movie about a guy with like a very young not terribly worldly wife whose level of power is like way less than him in every way who this character looks like. And he's like making a movie about how the power dynamics of that just inevitably lead to such serious abuses. And then he's also making a movie where a husband drugs his wife so that she can be raped. So it essentially drugs and rapes her. I Yeah, I just both do and don't know what to do with my perception that Roman Polanski on some level is saying, here are all the things I do. I made a movie about them. And beyond, not beyond all that, but in addition to all that, he, her husband does this to advance his career in show business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like beyond all, like beyond just sort of like being so accurate about looking at the trappings and structures of patriarchy and how brutal it is and how it can, you know, like lead to all of these things and then gaslight into thinking that it's not happening, even though that you do know that it's happening. It can steal, literally steal your baby from you and your flesh, like all of these things. And then it's about someone who is like annoyed. And we know this by what he says initially when the person who's showing them apartment is asking what he's doing. He's annoyed by the fact that he's not able to do things that are artistically satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so this is the trade that he makes. Yeah. Before we dive into any more of these tasty morsels, Mm -hmm. and I imagine this will be a tasty morsel packed episode. Can you, Sarah Marshall, walk us through rosemary's baby and just uh you know fill in the uninformed and then we'll go deeper love it okay i i feel like rosemary's baby is a story that has like this husk of cultural baggage around it like the Stepford wives it's become a name for something bigger than it is but rosemary's baby is about guy and rosemary woodhouse a young married couple 
She's 24. He's like actually in his 30s. He's not young, but she is. So whatever. And (laughs) they are moving. They just got married and they are moving into a new apartment at the Bramford where they are living in basically the sliced and diced um, back half of what was once a larger apartment and in the front of which live the cast of Vets, Roman and Minnie, played by Sydney Blackmer and Ruth Gordon, which also makes this creepy for me personally because I had seen uh, Harold and Maude before this, and it's very scary <laughs> to see Maude behave this way. <laughs> In the book by Ira Levin, The Love of My Life, Minnie Castavet is supposed to be a sort of like braying Midwestern accented person who's sort of like white haired and I don't know, gives a little bit of Barbara Bush energy in her description. And I love that we don't get that. We get Ruth Gordon in this movie. And when Mia Farrow <laughs> reads the audiobook of Rosemary's Baby, she just does Ruth Gordon for all the mini cast of that lines. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and she does it well, right? She really does. Yeah, Sarah encouraged me to listen to the audiobook before we did the movie. And f- outside of the fact that it sounds a little like Mia Farrow is reading it in an uninsulated closet, which sounds familiar because that often that's that's how i'm recording it is tremendous it's a tremendous read it's a tremendous read that she does in i think she reads in 2004 but sounds you know amia farrow has always sounded exactly the same so it just sounds like rosemary's reading the book to you oh right i was texting you while watching this like just person by person who's who i loved in the movie this is a perfectly cast movie there's not one role that's not in 11. It's true. Like right down to the apartment showing guy. Yes. Yes. So Rosemary and Guy find this new apartment that they love. It's fucking giant. It's gorgeous. It's uh, Sarah's the Dakota on the Upper West Side. It sure is. And it has fucking Central Park views. Overlooking Central Park, 13 foot ceilings, you know. It's one of those apartments like in single white female where you're like, this movie is like really daring me to buy the concept that this person has actual problems, which is hard to feel knowing the apartment they live in. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Although, and yet at the same time, it's like, I love how it's like this beautiful, spacious, like dreamboat apartment. And yet it feels in my slim experience, authentic to the New York apartment thing, at least of like these apartments where you feel like you are living inside the walls of a giant's house. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, I mean, do you know, I mean, what I, I read that this is actually, it's based very meticulously on a real Dakota apartment, but it was a set. Huh. I love that they did that. Are you familiar with This Is Really Happening, The Making of Rosemary's Baby? The book? No. Oh my no. God. It's so apparently this kind of goes into some detail because I'm, you know, I, I love nothing better than a renovation montage set to music. Of course. And this has one of the great, you know, we're painting everything white. And I and watching the sort of painting everything white and sort of installing yellow wallpaper and kind of freshening everything up and decluttering, to me is, I don't know if they intended this, but are you familiar with the aspect of modernism that was kind of all about hygiene that was happening kind of circa turn of the century? Kind of, but please talk about it. <laughs> Like the part of modernism where it's like everything is shapes and everything is smooth because it's mm-hmm. like shapes are cool and egalitarian and shapes belong to everybody because they're platonic solids and it's mm. not about luxury and, you know, exclusive materials and all that stuff. 
the big sweep of changes that changed how we live and how how the built environment looks to us were kind of percolating at the end of the 19th century. And one of the big pieces of that that actually doesn't get talked about, I think, because it's not really an aesthetic concern, it's more of a health concern, was this big push to have smooth surfaces, inorganic surfaces, tile, metal, glass, because Mm. it was hygienic. And there, you know, it's coming Mm -hmm. off of like the flu pandemic, tuberculosis, the sort of massive Uh. marshalling of medical resources in the wake of World War One. And this real, so there's that moment in the 20s when kind of it's almost you picture the whole decade is like everyone's wearing a little nurse's outfit and it's like everything (laughs) is white. And so that's kind of like when, you know, the sort of Victorian ideal of like, I'm a cultured person because I've got like lots of different exotic plants. I have lots of stuff. I have mm-hmm. books. I have yep. objects of virtue under glass. I have, you know, hair jewelry. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I have fucking, I have ferns. My wallpaper <laughs> and my textiles are patterned. Everything is chock-a-block. That that chock-a-blockness, the kind of more is more aesthetic, represents, you know, it's kind of the, the cliche of basically having lots of ornately carved surfaces means probably that you have health or that you're doing nothing but dusting, or that you're just living in dust. And part of the promise of modernism is that it's egalitarian because it's it requires less cleaning, right? right? So there's the the montage that happens where the apartment of um what was her name? It was Mrs. Gardenia. Mrs. Gardenia. So she's even named after a plant. Yeah. Huh. A like very fragrant kind of overpowering old lady smelling plant, one would even say. Kind of almost sickly and that her apartment is like dark. Yeah. And she was an intellectual. She was, wasn't she wasn't one of the first women attorneys in the city or something like that? Yes. I love the phrase like woman lawyer or woman blank (laughs) because it's like, it's like such a cave person thing. It's like me woman lawyer. It's exactly. It's like, like a giraffe accountant or something. It's just like, you know, you're really going to hire a woman, you know, like a, a bison. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's so part of the ritual of making this apartment modern is the decor. She's got, you know, this lovely modern furniture, these modern pendant lights, all these little kind of post-war touches, but they're also painting everything. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like we're watching this apartment, this physical space from the Dakota, which is one of the oldest buildings in New York. I mean, it's one of the oldest luxury apartment houses in the city. It's much older than a lot of the other like Beaux-Arts and Art Deco towers that you kind of will typically see walking around Central Park is, you know, she's banishing the Victorian clutter and kind of bringing in sunlight. Hmm. And there's so there's something it isn't just about style, because God knows it is like fabulous beyond belief, like the job Mm -hmm. they do. But it's also almost like moving the timeline, like she's dialing Mm. the Dakota Mm. from, you know, 1884 to 1965 by sort of doing all this. Right. As she does with her head later. Exactly. Exactly. Everything's entering the mid 60s. And there's something about this, you know, this movie could not have been made at any other moment. Like everything Mm. about it is 1965. Yeah. Hmm. Or 1968, I guess. Well, the story is set in 1966 because Ira Levin was writing it in, in 1964, 1965, I believe, and was like, right. I don't know. I'm messy on that. But I know it's set in 1966 because the whole thing is that the baby is coming in June of 1966. And he was like, I love it. The year one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Six, 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 six. It's perfect. <laughs> and so you have this, you know, constellation of like birth control pills becoming widely available, right? That was like sort of circa mm-hmm. 1965. Vatican II. 
and women entering the workforce in, in bulk for the first time or kind of starting to. And so all of these things, this kind of like vis-a-vis Catholicism, feminism and reproduction are kind of swirling around in this decade. And it's kind of hard to imagine this movie coming out of any other moment. Well, right. And also that it's like at such a hinge moment, like Mm -hmm. this was the year my mom started college. And one of the things that she always mentions is that like at the start of that, like you had to have your door open a trash can width if you had a male guest in your room. (laughs) And by the time she graduated, that was uh, long gone. You know, just like it was this incredibly pivotal time that I don't know if we've experienced an equivalent of for, you know, people our age. I mean, I feel lately, I suspect that this was something like what it felt like. And I don't think that it's, you know, there's many, many differences. But just the feeling of like, the youth are no longer like they won't respond to the stick or the carrot. Oh, God, what do we do? And then also this like outsized like backlash to that, which Alex and I have talked many times over the past umpteen years Umpteen is a very my mom word Um, about about how like the 60s like were the like youth rebellion movement, but then in a larger way, like the backlash against that movement. Yeah, I what I think is like we have experienced that moment just in the wrong direction. Like we've experienced the mid sixties moment. Oh, then we went back in time. We like right, had ex- we were like teetering on yeah. the edge, and then we were like, let's fall back into the early sixties with all the assassinations and the spying. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a like a slip fault, right? It's that it's like it like moves and moves and moves, and then suddenly it just like goes back to where it started from. Yeah, that's I, unfortunately I feel like we've had like a a reverse sixties moment. Yeah, you know, every few years since like nineteen seventy one. Yeah. And and the feeling now of like, I mean, to quote Tom Hulse and Amadeus, now we're going back in terms of like women's rights, reproductive rights, reproductive justice. Are we ever? Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yes, it's a fun one. Um, But anyway, what's Rosemary's Baby about? I'll tell you. So Rosemary and Guy moved into, again, we cannot stress enough, the most beautiful apartment anyone has ever seen. And Guy, who is played to the hilt by John Cassavetes. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the best roles ever, ever played, (laughs) ever cast, ever played. Like, this is also the thing. You're like Roman Polanski, like awful, terrible man, like should be held accountable in some real way. Please, God, before he slips this mortal chain. But God, can he cast a movie? Yeah. And this is also like a long movie that is an adaptation of quite a short book. And there's really only one significant scene I'm almost positive that gets cut as the book gets turned into a movie. And to that point, yeah, it is a exactly like a six hour audiobook read. I don't even know how many pages that would be. It's like less than 200, I think. It's designed to be readable on the Hartford to Manhattan commuter rail. It's a perfect almost scene for scene adaptation. Yeah. A beat for beat. It's really great. I think it's one of the most faithful adaptations like book to film that exists. And apparently Ira Levin, when he saw it, was like, I don't know if Roman Polanski knows that you're actually allowed to like, like maybe this is how they make movies in Poland. I don't know. Very literal. (laughs) And I think it's like, no, Ira, you just wrote a really great book. Tight as hell. (laughs) 
So Rosemary's husband, Guy, we learned specifically in the book he's made all this money from, I think, an Anison ad that he was in that went national, <laughs> which is perfect. Yes. So he's like, sure, I'm making a lot of money and I have a beautiful new wife and we're going to start a family and we have the most amazing apartment ever created by the hand of man. But I want more. And he wants artistic <laughs> satisfaction. And so effectively, the chain of events basically is that Rosemary goes down to the laundry room. She makes friends with this girl, Terry, who's like, I live with the cast of Vets. They've saved me from when I was living on the street and I was addicted to drugs. I love them. They're so kind. Next night, Terry's dead. The cast of Vets come home. And what's that necklace? And what's that necklace? Oh, yeah. And Terry's like, they gave me this charm. It's a little strange. <laughs> smells kind of bad. But I don't mind. And then... The cast of Vets come home and don't try very hard to not act suspicious. My impression of Minnie is to be like, poor girl, she didn't even seem sad. I can't believe she would take her own life. Oh, well, Roman, let's go upstairs. <laughs> and basically, Rosemary is like, we know from the beginning that she's observant. She's a good detective. She notices stuff mm -hmm. and points it out. Again, like this movie, as Alex was texting me last night, like, seems to have all by itself created Americans' sense of literacy about what Satanists do. <laughs> and your response was, haven't you been listening? <laughs> and, uh, I la literally laughed out loud by myself <laughs> in the house. <laughs> but you know, it's like, yeah, it's worth pointing out again and again. I just didn't realize how many plot points. Like, I, I thought it was just like vibe and conceit. Right. No, it's like plot points. It's the baby body has the most energy when they harvest babies. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> it's, oh, and the, the detail about using the fleet. You know, it isn't just the blood. They use the flesh. Blah, blah, blah. These yeah. unoriginal motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, like, uh, Alex, as someone I love, you are forced to have Michelle remembers literacy. <laughs> so sorry. Yes. And. And one of the things that occurs in this story that is prominently in Michelle remembers, like at the beginning when Michelle is like first sort of being like, what would a Satanist do? Is painting the body of the sacrifice, you know, the woman who is sort of mm. unwillingly at the center of the ritual that like Rosemary's body gets painted in red. And that's a Michelle remembers thing. And like, I think that, yeah, to a, a really great extent, people who are kind of at the forefront of the satanic panic, trying to figure out what Satanists do because they can't find any to observe, <laughs> are like, uh, well, they chant and they have black candles and they want the baby blood and they paint you with red paint. So there you go. And this really raises the issue of like, how are you supposed to be a Satanist in New York City? Because these people have a very spacious apartment and their neighbors can still hear them chanting. <laughs> and also hearing Minnie read Roman the Riot Act. Yes. Because, you know, well, you, you screwed it up and now we have to start all over. You know, you're spilling cocktails. You're totally screwing yes. this up. Let's, you know. Do we know how he screwed it up? Because Terry kills herself. So we, I think we don't know. We're, we're not treated to a detailed account. Well, you know, here's what I think, actually. I think that because Minnie is upset that Roman appears to have like wanted to tell her mm. and been like, hey, right. we are going to have right. Satan impregnate you. That is our plan. FYI. Yeah. And to their credit, their initial idea was to be like, let's just find a girl who like wants to be impregnated by Satan and be upfront with her about it, kind of. <laughs> 
And then Terry apparently was not into that. And I think they killed her, actually. I think they pushed her out a window and then went for a nice mm. walk and got a Mr. Softy. Oh, interesting. Okay. And it's like, well, gosh, like, why not just go downtown? Like, go to it's NYU. <laughs> You'll find, like, take out an ad in the Village Voice, you idiots. Go to a folk music venue. <laughs> find any woman who's dated Bob Dylan. She's had worse. <laughs> Okay, so Terry dies under suspicious circumstances. The cops are like, all right, sounds fine to me. And then Minnie the next day comes over to Rosemary's in a like, let's make friends kind of a way, which later we, of course, recognize is like, how the fuck much does this bitch know about what we were doing to Terry? <laughs> so Minnie comes over the next day, is like very nosy, just kind of... This comes through more in the book, but like this is so much a story about the horror of having in-laws because they effectively <laughs> become guys' in-laws because his own parents are out of the picture. Which is so, I'm so glad you brought that up to me, Sarah, because mm. I was struggling so hard to be like, what represents what in this? Because mm -hmm. it's so, you, is sometimes convoluted because as to your point, sometimes, you know, the Satanists read as Upper West Side Jews, which yes. is not great. But then you know about Ira's, Ira's a Jewish atheist, which is interesting. And some, you know, all this stuff I was trying to like put two and two together. And I was like, oh no, it's just like in-laws are annoying. That's great. They're, they're the meddling <laughs> grandparents. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. And also you just look back and you're like, Ira, I love you. If you're me, you're like, I love you. I love your writings. Truly like the novels of Ira Levin are some of the only fiction I've had the mental capacity to read in the past two, three mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. You're like, Ira, I love you so much. And I love that you just like wrote this novel, this fantasy horror novel. And you just kind of like, we're like, what about the horror of having in-laws? And how does my <laughs> wife feel about my parents, possibly? And what's that like for her? And what's it like to have a pushy mother-in-law who's making you drink a stupid smoothie every day? But at the same time, it turns out that, like, in retrospect, it apparently always you're always having too much faith in this country. Yes. If you, like, in any way allow a depiction of like even Jewish coded characters to like go anywhere near <laughs> Satanists. Mm -hmm. yes. And it's just like Ira Levin, like as a Jew, like you have a right to like write up characters that are resemble people, you know, and yet this has been taken. And I think used as part of the whole, you know, rarely stated aloud everywhere within it premise of the satanic panic that it's just based on classic anti-Semitism and blood libel. Right, right. That would have taken me three years to say. So well yeah. put. That was, <laughs> yeah. that was beautifully put, Sarah. Been thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> beautifully put. So, okay. So the so the cast of Vets, uh, they invite Rosemary and Guy over for dinner. And I believe that the most important shot in this movie is when Minnie has brought Rosemary into the <gasps> kitchen to yes. help her do dishes. Sorry, do you, you describe the shot. <laughs> so they're they're kind of doing the dishes, talking about fertility like you do with a, somebody mm -hmm. you've just met. It's also the thing of like old women are just kind of allowed to say batshit things to yeah. younger people and you kind of are conditioned to just accept it that you're kind of being described as like in the context of like like a, a farm animal who's performing to expectations yeah you're a brood mare baby <laughs> and then there's a wisp of smoke coming from the sitting room 
and something is afoot. So we know that some, there's a conversation is occurring out of, there's so much kind of, you know, there are phone calls taking place, you know, kind of in the part of the room that you can't see. There's so much of that in this movie. And it kind of just encapsulates this sense that Rosemary is on to something, but doesn't totally get it. Right. Like she's just she sees part of the puzzle, but not the whole thing. Totally. And it's like that smoke feels like the universal signifier of like men talking and the idea of like men in a culture yep. of yeah. their own. Or that there's there's a new pope. Or that there's a new pope. That oh too. my god. <laughs> the Pope. Could be. Just it's it's coming from the Dakota. Now now it can be told. Yeah. Oh my God. And so so they have dinner and what we realize later is that after this, like, I don't know, 20 minute conversation, maybe 30, I guess there are a lot of dishes. Roman has talked Guy into, or at least like made serious headway in talking Guy into allowing them to drug his wife and summon Satan and have him rape her so that she can be impregnated with the Antichrist. And they're like, We'll get you rolls on Broadway. <laughs> oh my God, it's wild. <laughs> you'll, you'll get to wear that shirt that was in the New Yorker. It's every, you know, all of your dreams will come true. <laughs> I don't love how much the book talks about how big Satan's dick is. I will say. <laughs> I hate it. Honestly. And I, and it's, I don't mean to make light of this scene, but it was so confusing to me because in the book, like she thinks it's, it's guy. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of revealed that it's not. And I thought that his just like, I thought he was just zealous. Like, uh, and no, it's just like, it was Satan's giant dick. I hated it so fucking much. I hated it the most. That's so interesting. And it clearly is. I mean, if we're sort of skipping ahead to the scene, mm-hmm. it, they do show John Cassavetti's face. So I think that the implication is that it's kind of, is the implication that they're, that his body. No, it's the Satan. It's oh, okay. Satan it is. is there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're seeing it kind of through her drugged state. Right. It's quasi conscious. Yeah, exactly. And so she thinks it's guy for a long time. I think, I think it's not even fully resolved necessarily in the book. It might be, I, I, I can't quite remember, but she thinks it's guy at least the whole, at least almost the whole time. So yes. And, the, and also like, yeah, I don't want to make light of the scene, like you said, but it's also like, as we talk about, like, I think <laughs> I myself, I'm like prone to giggliness here because yes. I am giggly when I'm scared. And the scene has been scaring the shit out of me since I was 13 years old. And I think it really remains unparalleled in terms of, I don't know, just depicting a a dream sequence in a movie, I think has never been done in a way that feels more real. I totally agree. Yeah. There is something incredibly uncanny and sort of amazing about the true dreams that she has. Because there's that one dream where she's kind of getting, she's half asleep and dreaming about some scene, you know, kind of getting in trouble. Somebody got in trouble at her Catholic school and there's workmen and things are happening and it's all kind of above the bedstead and Roman and Minnie's conversation gets looped into that. So Minnie's voice becomes the the nun teacher. And then the dream sequence of the rape, which is sort of this like the Kennedys are there and Hutch is there, but then Hutch is kind of JFK and then he's not. And then the elevator guys that, you know, they can only have Catholics on the boat. Exactly. Catholics only. And the funny thing is that when you guys were talking about the dinner, one of the things that the dinner reminds me of is this. I don't know if this is a thing that's kind of like you experience sort of peculiarly as somebody who's the product of an Irish Catholic Episcopalian 
union, uh, that it sounds like listening to wasps talk about Catholicism. Oh, God, totally. <laughs> to- no, absolutely. Right. It's like because I kind of pass, I've absolutely been privy to commentary and conversations about, you know, that it's basically like... This is how my family talks about Catholics. Right. It's, like, to, you know, talk as though they're talking about this kind of, you know, this primitive death cult and stuff, so, you know. Totally. Which is incredible, right? Like, I it's love... Incredible. And, yeah. like, I my parents don't really believe anything. I grew up going to Episcopalian schools, so I, like, you know, I, I'm, like, Jesus literate, I guess. And it's so funny to me that, like, Protestantism... And again, there's, like, crazy shit in Catholicism... But there's like, I think, an equal amount of crazy shit in Protestantism. And it's also like at this point, way more of an unchecked mm-hmm. power in the United States. And like to be like, well, we believe that God sent his only begotten son to this earth to be like horribly tortured and die. <laughs> and we talk about it all the time. Um, and all our major holidays are about it. But those people. Right? But those people <laughs> believe they're actually eating his body. And that's gross. That's too far. And you brought this up, Sarah, just now in passing, but like what happened as a result of being like, no, 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 Protestants are the reasonable ones is we let them just become what they thought Catholics were in the 60s. Totally. Exactly. That's true. (laughs) And yet and yet for as much death and destruction and abuse and horror the Catholic Church has created, at least there's some nice art. Where's the Protestant art? Show it to me. Is it God's not dead? It's like, it's like, it's like those, those churches that have a guy who plays the guitar. That's what it is. Yes. Like the like evangelical Sistine Chapel is Kevin Sorbo. It's not great. Like your greatest artist is Kurt Cameron. He wasn't even the best actor on Growing Pains. <laughs> And yes, I'm describing all of Protestantism. I know every Protestant believes in Kurt Cameron. No, I'm I'm talking about the kind of like the, the unchecked rise of like American political, like actively gunning for control of our political infrastructure, evangelical mm-hmm. shit culture. Yeah. Yeah. So after this like very short conversation, after truly a minimum of pitching, guy is like, yeah, let's do it. I'm in. Which... Again, like I talk about this all the time, but that to me is what this movie is really about. This idea that like reasonably women in the 60s who like marry men who they love, they have this nice relationship with. You're like, I'm excited to be married to you. I'm so happy we're married. Like Rosemary is not like ambivalent about this marriage. She's like at the beginning kind of in domestic bliss that they will still sell you down the river for their careers. And I feel like this is like... You know, the literal Satan tends to not be available, but there's a million other ways to do that. And men were doing all of them at this time and, you know, continue to do so. And yeah, I think that we like know now to not be so open about it, but we still do it. And so Guy is like, yeah, let's do it. And so they have a dinner where Minnie brings over this like spiked chocolate mousse that Rosemary eats, but she only eats half of because she doesn't like there's a taste about it that she doesn't like. And Guy is like, eat it! And she puts it in her <laughs> napkin. But she's drugged enough that she's like semi-lucid during this horrible rape scene that we've just described. And so we we see what seemed at the time like a somewhat original vocabulary of Satanism and is now just like, feels like the, the sea we swim in. And so she wakes up, her back is scratched up. She's got these long, ugly scratches on her shoulder. And Guy is like, oh yeah, I went ahead and... Uh, 
raped you while you were unconscious. He doesn't say it that way because that concept won't exist until the 90s. But <laughs> that's what he says. Yeah, she's just like in the book, she like doesn't know what to do. She's like bothered by this. Mm-hmm. But again, to your point, like there is not necessarily a vocabulary of what has happened. So she's just like, she's bothered and can't quite put her finger on why. And it's because he's treated her just like an object with like a disembodied object. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, and the thing of being like, this doesn't feel right to me, but like, I guess this is fine because the society I'm in and the person I'm talking to has like such pure conviction that it's fine, but it doesn't feel fine. Mm -hmm. But Alex, can you talk about like the only extended sequence that's in the book, but not in the movie is about this? Oh, yeah. So she takes her buddy Hutch's car and she goes to his cabin for a couple of days. And it's she describes it as the first time she's ever been alone. And while she's there, she reads a book and kind of hangs out and spends some time by herself. And by like the second of three days that she's there, it finally just kind of hits her all of the ways that guy is bad and all of the ways that he's vapid and kind of just not treating her like a human. Like, I think it's the closest she gets to acknowledging that what has happened to her is rape. She has all these realizations. And then by the time that she has to go back, she's kind of talking herself out of having had the realizations. And then when she's back in guy's proximity, she's kind of back under the spell or under the sort of perpetually being told that she's kind of the crazy reason why she's having all of the feelings that she's having And any realization she's had at the cabin goes away. Yeah. Or goes to a place that she's she has to access later. Yeah. And, you know, this movie, the story is also about how, like, we love our children and the fact that we love our children keeps us in relationships with abusive men and their abusive families. And that she's like, Mm. she's kind of on the verge of a realization and then she figures out she's pregnant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, she's pregnant. She gets stuffs the weirdness and her feeling that something horrible happened down and is like, all right, I'm having this baby. And then the cast of vets from the beginning are very controlling. She's seeing a dreamy young gynecologist played by Charles Grodin. Looks great. They're like, no, no, no. You need to see our gynecologist, who's also a Satanist, of course. (laughs) And they are giving her smoothies to drink and a little cake every day and just like, We just know that, like, they're controlling what she eats, they're controlling what she drinks. When she leaves the apartment, they notice when she has other people or tries to talk to her friends, they're invasive about it. Her friend Hutch, who's, like, a kind of grandpa figure who she met when she first came to New York, is suspicious about the building from the start because he's like, there's been a lot of murders in the Bramford, and they're like, whatever. And then he works out, basically that the Castavets are Satanists and that Mr. Castavet is the son of a famous Satanist who, I forget if we get this in the movie, but in the book, we definitely learn that he was literally torn to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that, absolutely. Yeah. He's part of this like clown car of visitors who tell Rosemary that she looks terrible. <laughs> and comes into the apartment, <laughs> you look like, you know, are you on one of those Zen diets? That must be it. And it's worse than a Zen diet, right? It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's above and beyond. Yeah, it's the mini cast of that pregnancy <laughs> diet. And yeah, and she's losing weight. She's in a ton of pain, which her obstetrician is telling her is normal. I think I said gynecologist before, whatever. She says it feels like there's a wire inside of her constricting at all times. It's, ugh. Ugh. yeah. 
which also like if you experience a menstrual cycle like from the beginning you will probably hear some iteration of like i know it's the worst pain you've ever experienced you just have to deal with it and you can't talk to men about it because they'll find you gross so Mm -hmm. figure it out and the like legacy of like suppressed pain pain specifically that has to do with like anything uterus related is like it's such a strange organ it's like it has to be a secret and so she she's in all this awful pain her pregnancy is being very controlled she's being kept in the dark she's supposed to meet with hutch he doesn't show up it turns out that he has lapsed into a coma and she figures out that the satanists have sent him into one and also works out with the book that he wanted her to have like what's going on and figures out what he figured out about the cast of vets she comes to guy with it and he's so convincing in his denial that she's like oh well oh okay but <laughs> she wants to go back to her dreamy young charles groden doctor and finally at the end of her pregnancy she comes very close to the truth and she decides oh i know what's happening the cast of us are satanists and they want to sacrifice my baby in their ritual because baby blood is the most powerful blood and she's almost right because it turns out that of course she she is birthing the antichrist for them so she actually has a more important role which is like another sign or sort of another example of like being the chosen one or being chosen isn't necessarily great right like (laughs) remember it's like that scene when she's waiting for hutch and kind of wondering what's going on and she's in terrible pain and she offers this kind of pain banishment like she's sitting in front of the time life you know like i will have no more of the pain go away and then looks at the christmas window and the christmas window features a kind of madonna enthroned scene Mm. and you can be enthroned and be terribly unhappy and in pain Mm. and also not in control it's the Mm. you know the acquiescence to an unplanned pregnancy is not control it's it's Mm. acquiescence oh my god yeah yeah and i also love how like she goes from someone who's like really happy, excited. She has a ton of energy. She like remodels this whole apartment or at least redecorates it extensively, which is like such a feat of energy. And she turns from that to someone who's like constantly in pain, like really struggling emotionally and physically, like can't get dressed, doesn't leave the house. I feel like stories at their best that bring in some kind of a sort of larger than real life aspect can do it in a way that highlights what real life is like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how you can just be like by showing how bad a satanic pregnancy is you can actually kind of slyly point out like how bad a pregnancy can be (laughs) and often is Mm -hmm. yeah to that same point like even if she were not impregnated by satan raped by the devil like all of the other worldly things that happen her response to essentially being gaslit the entire time which is making her smaller and smaller and sicker and sicker is so accurate. Uh It's like an incredibly accurate portrayal of just like what it's like to be told repeatedly that everything you're knowing, existing and feeling is not true. Yeah. And that gets to something that that it's kind of watching her transformation in this film at the end when she really clocks that something bad is happening, but she doesn't know exactly what, but she thinks she knows. She kind of goes into this kind of fierce, like self-protective and baby protective mode. Like she is seeking out Charles 
Groden. She's trying to get away from the cabal. She's, you know, wants to go into Mount Sinai and, you know, protect little Andy or Jenny. And it, you had, had this sense that's like, she's, oh, Rosemary's a great mom. Like, Rosemary's doing what she needs to do. And then, weirdly, you then see at the very end, she sort of starts to, once she knows everything, gaze at this little satanic baby and kind of start rocking him and think, well, I guess, you know, he's, he's, he's my baby. And that how complicated motherhood is, that it's this mm-hmm. unconditional, powerful love that will make you, you know, like lift a car off of your child if you have to, that you do anything to protect them even when it's Satan. Yeah. Well, the Antichrist. The to anti- be fair. Right. That's yeah, to be to be fair. That to me <laughs> is is the real horror of it. That it's this oh, yeah. you know, this real ambivalence about what all that means. Yeah. So yeah, Rosemary basically the final act of this movie is that she figures out what's going on. She can't be dissuaded, or she figures out at least that the Castavets have something to do with this pregnancy. She still thinks they want to sacrifice the baby. She goes to Charles Grodin, her dreamy young former doctor, and like tells him everything. And he's like, well, this is terrible. We must get some help for you. I'll, I'll get you a room at the hospital and goes and makes some calls. And Guy shows up with the Satanists because they're coming to take her away. Ha ha. And <laughs> it's the worst. It's It just is like... I don't know. You're, yeah. And you, you get a real sense of kind of medical hierarchy there because do you, did yeah. you catch that moment when she's describing it and Charles Grodin's probably like, okay, this sounds crazy, but, or I guess CC Hill MD, let's say this sounds mm-hmm. totally crazy, but clearly something weird is going on. And then Abraham Saperstein. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Right. clearly, you know, senior venerated yeah. big deal MD, right. In the, so, and he's young. So, like all of the options are bad like because right. like one of the options is like he didn't believe it at all but he was pretending to be helpful and he sold her out and then the other option is he was on her side until, until. to your great point like sort of like someone who could get him in trouble in his career hmm. came into it and then um he acts accordingly and both options are so depressing that's never occurred to me the second one i've just always read it as like from the beginning he's like all right lady you're clearly you know i think he was on her side until it was like it's a small world and there's this very mm-hmm. posh you know v- sort of revered physician and that's i mean medicine even now is very conservative you know it's like very hierarchical and there is this reverence even now that i think younger doctors kind of feel like oh my god i can't run afoul of this person they're a big deal they make the decisions yada yada and so that's he maybe he was doing a little uh sort of faustian calculation in his own mind like i you know this is something clearly is wrong here but like yikes you know i don't want to get in the middle of this yeah yeah and so, you know and for whatever reason again it's men talking right this missing right. scene here is men talking mm. so they take her back they drug her again and she gives birth and then wakes up and they tell her that her baby has died but they still are pumping her breast milk and taking it away somewhere And I don't know. They're not the sneakiest people in the world, honestly. (laughs) There's a baby loudly crying. There's a baby loudly crying. (laughs) Turn the air conditioner back on, dear. Don't listen to the baby crying. I love it. And so, of course, she's like, yeah, I actually think they have my baby. And so she goes into the cast of that's apartment, 
through the the secret closet and that she noticed in the beginning. It's so fabulous. She gets a knife. They've got this crazy like black organza bassinet. (laughs) And uh, let me read the section in the book because we really get into like the specifics of a satanic baby. She glanced at the baby, saw his yellow eyes and looked to the window. You should oil the wheels, she said. That could bother him too. I will, Roman said. You see, he stopped complaining. He knows who you are. Don't be silly, Rosemary said, and looked at the baby again. He was watching her. His eyes weren't that bad, really, now that she was prepared for them. It was a surprise that had upset her. They were pretty in a way. (laughs) What are his hands like? She asked, rocking him. They're very nice, Roman said. He has claws, but they're very tiny and pearly. The mitts are only so he doesn't scratch himself, not because his hands aren't attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And he also has little horns. (laughs) So, yeah, we get to the scene. She goes, she confronts them. She's like, what the fuck have you fucking done to me? And then they're like, we got you a baby. You like this baby, right? And in the, we like get there at the end of the movie. We get to her being like, okay, I'll stay. But it's just like, it's just a bigger moment at the end of this book that we have her really coming around to like, oh, he's cute. I love my Antichrist baby. The end. Yes. I love how Ira Levin just admits that there's no way around the fact that a baby is a baby and they're all pretty cute. <laughs> Right, right. And that that pull to motherhood is, you know, whatever you were afraid of before. And I think that's the thing. I mean, that's so scary that you're kind of, you're being swept up in forces beyond your control and kind of gets to this question of something that I think about quite a lot, which is that, you know, are women people or are they a public good? Um, I I firmly (laughs) am on the side of person, but the jury Mm -hmm. is very much out in America about our status and that essentially you're, you as a person don't matter, but you're your infrastructure matters and it's really valuable. It's true. It's like the way that you're treated and your health and your well-being matters, like not because you're an autonomous being, but because it's like the state of the train tracks in our nation. You got to keep those train tracks working. You're pre-pregnant at all times. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're the your supply side. So that's what Rosemary's Baby is about. I'm done. Hell yeah. <laughs> da, Fucking da, nailed da, it. Da, da, da. Oh, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Where, so we've covered so much ground already. I love it. What ground do we want to move into? Do we want to move into like the herbarium? Yes. Like sort of looking at kind of the like science versus herbs. Sarah, of course we want to move into the herbarium. I always want to move into an herbarium. <laughs> I love how many conversations there are in this movie about the smell of tannis root or devil's pepper, as the book refers to yes. it, the spongy matter that I guess is is soothing to to the young Satanist. And, you know, what's in the drink and what's in the charm? What is it? And Hutch kind of, you know, are you sure you don't mean this or that, this other, you know, is it, are you sure you don't mean Horace Root or, you know, there's so much kind of debate and discussion of what things are. And that's, to some extent, that's even true of the conversation with her women friends in the kitchen when she, they have this party and everybody tells her she looks terrible and gives her roses. And it's like, okay, you're pregnant and you look really terrible. That's, you know, what's, what's going on? And she bursts into tears and says, I'm in terrible pain. And this, this doctor is telling me it, quote unquote, it'll go away. You know, haven't you heard? And all of these very sensible 
women, these lay people are like, no, this is total common sense. Like, that's not right. You need to get a second opinion, see somebody else. And the conversation that follows that, the, you know, it's not fair to Saperstein, the whole kind of guy has this tantrum. And what Rosemary says, you know, well, what about what's fair to me? It's right. like, which is basically, that's kind of the the idea on the tip of my brain every time I hear a conversation about reproductive autonomy. It's like, what about, what, you know, we're not not part of the conversation. That's, you know, like, <laughs> what about what's fair to us? Yeah. And that's such an interesting acceleration of this thing that happens prior when Rosemary's given whatever, it's like the pie or the cake that mm-hmm. essentially, that clearly has a has something to knock her out in it. And then Guy essentially makes a whole scene about how it's not fair to them because they had put in all this effort to cook it and oh, it's not fair God. for her to like not eat it. Oh my God. It yeah. is so fucking brutal. It's it's an illustration of how women, particularly moms needs are sort of a priori secondary to everything else. Like this idea that you're kind of like, you're putting everything on hold. You can wait. If you're hungry, you have to pee, you're busy, you have something to do. You have a career and a desire to, to do things. It's because Rose, it's interesting. Rosemary doesn't particularly seem to really want to do other stuff. That's the interesting mm-hmm. thing too, is that right. she's not someone who says, well, I, I moved to New York and I'm going to be a big book editor and, you know, wear great clothes and turtlenecks and be cool. She wants to be a mom. Like she is actually kind mm-hmm. of getting what she wanted, but in this very like horrific dystopic way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it is like, it's a story about getting for what you, you asked for. Alex, what did you think of experiencing this in a page to screen way for the first time? It's, it's for as horrific as it is. And it's a book that describes all of these real life horrors with like a touch of the demonic in order to mm-hmm. separate us from how wholly depressing they are. It's kind of a delightful read. It's like a really oh, yeah. great thriller, a very effective thriller. You are constantly thinking that she's going to get away from it or that she has a a fresh opportunity to get out when she realizes what's happening. And she's never given that, which feels kind of wild in retrospect because the archetype of a, you know, she's essentially our final girl that never becomes a final girl. Hmm. She never gets covered in blood. She never gets covered in blood, even though we have the great scene where she's lurking around with the knife in hand. But I, I loved it. And it's the first Ira Levin book I've ever read. And I'm very eager to read others. I recommend The Stepford Wives, which I think, yeah. I second that. Yep, yep. absolutely. It's on deck. <laughs> you know, you, you had said some version of this, Sarah, when, when I was texting you about the book that you know, good things come to people who pay attention to the plight of women or something Mm -hmm. along those lines with regard to, (laughs) with regard to Levin. I would be curious to know more about what made him so sensitive in that arena. And then also with regard to being able to be a person who wrote the Stepford Wives and sort of had that perspective, you know, in, in this place to what we've talked about forever, for as long as we've known each other, which is, Mm -hmm you know, fiction and reality kind of considers a man, a a sensitive man who has the ability to see feelings beyond his own as, as a superhero, which Uh like really ultimately is just speaking to how depressing the scene is overall. (laughs) Yes. But I, I'm struck by that. I'm like, Oh, Levin is a man who is sensitive to the plights of people experiencing not his own experience. Right. And it's like, it's so funny to, well, two things. First of all, it's like, I don't have independent confirmation of this, but like, it certainly is my theory that Ira Levin just like noticed his wife. (laughs) And then that gave him the insight to like, 
write about kind of the plight of being a wife in America and how it's like bad. And I also then love to think about, you know, they start off in New York. Actually, before he was writing novels, he was working in theater. Hmm. And then, you know, at some point they moved to Connecticut. And just thinking about like the other writer types, you know, the Yeatses and the Updikes and the some third guy Cheevers who are like, <laughs> you know, the men of this era who are just like really muscling it and sweating it and thinking about the plight of the American male, how hard it is to be an affluent white man in your 30s and the 60s sometimes. And just like trying to like crack into the American consciousness with this rich vein of material and just I'm being sarcastic and just like really struggling to like come up with an idea that like resonates with people and then ira levin as far as i can tell writes about his wife a couple of times Mm. and changes the culture of america (laughs) right and what is so fascinating to the points that you read up earlier sarah but it's like you ira levin should be free to write about whatever you want but we also have to consider we don't have to consider but we in retrospect consider what people are going to do with the information that they have received and sort of taken literally it is wild that he wrote this book that feels again very sensitive to this character who is a woman and being just crushed by the patriarchy and then all of the imagery from this book in one way or another would morph into all of these other sort of like cultural touch points and touchstones mutate and then become what we came to know as the satanic panic yeah and i guess it's also it's like You think about what you do as an artist, you have to be conscious of what you put out into the world. But at a certain point, I think at a certain point, you have to accept that you're not in control. And particularly that, you know, among many other categories of people, if you write about women or Jews in any way, it will somehow come back around to be a tool used against those exact people. Mm -hmm. Totally. And you can't, like, if you write a book, if you write a a fun little domestic thriller about how your neighbors have impregnated you as Satan's baby, you don't know, nor could you know what the culture had an appetite for to like turn your imagery into fulfilling some bloodlust that they already had. Yeah. I think actually Philip Roth's first big story, I believe it was called Protector of the Faith. And it's about exactly this. This is, I think, him writing in the late 50s. And it's about Hmm. being a young Jewish writer who's published a story that, like, I think depicts his Jewish family or his community in an unflattering way. And I haven't read this in about 20 years, clearly. But, like, his father or somebody being like, you really shouldn't do that because, like, Hmm. it's your job to, to protect us and to not give our oppressors any more material basically right and he's like but i'm a writer and like i want to depict my life as i know it and like this is my life as i know it and why is it my job to be the protector of the faith and i feel like you could write that story today right many you know many friends of the show are trans writers and actors and who are trying to figure out how to not simultaneously have to be the representations of all Mm. trans people and have freedom beyond that pressure. So like this, this continues. It it feels like it will forever continue for some group of folks. Right, right. And the thing of like, for example, like if you experience an abusive relationship, like within a marginalized community, can you depict that relationship? Or are you too afraid of that being used as ammunition by your oppressors to like prove, you know, 
a point they already want to make, like you just said. Yeah. Right. Well said. Um, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Herbarium. Did we ever get there? <laughs> I think we covered the herbarium. Maybe we should move through it like as if we're moving through the apartment. Like, are there rooms Ooh. that you want to go to next? <laughs> I have been kind of thinking a lot about the sort of the connection between the short story, the yellow wallpaper and this movie, because, you know, the, the nursery, the bedroom, uh, the kitchen, to some extent, is has sort of yellow accents. I think it might also have yellow wallpaper. It has a, a lovely yellow vase that gets deployed for red roses. And it's interesting that when the red roses come into the picture, you realize how little red there is yeah. in, in the movie. It's like on the calendar, blood, you know, so huh. there's sort of like... Satanic paint a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. But this this apartment is this kind of sea of white and pale green. Yeah. It looks like a resort and it's not fleshy. And then the, the cast of Ed's apartment is the exact opposite, right? Everything is pink and red and brown and it's all, it's, you know, all the colors of humanity or Satan, I suppose. <laughs> I can't remember if this got translated in the movie, but when they go over to the apartment in the book, Rosemary notices that all of their art is <gasps> off the walls yes. and there's like, you know, you can see the spots with the spot. Yeah, exactly. Where the spots where the art was. And then she finally either goes back over. Or she remembers f- from, when she was brought over to the apartment and they have like, I think over their mantle place, a painting of a church on fire, <laughs> of a cathedral on fire. Oh, in the, in the entryway. It's like, a, yeah, it's oh, like a yes. burning. Yeah. I'd love to just see all of their art. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, if there could be like a coffee table book of like the cast of collection, that was just like an art book. The cast of collection is so good. <laughs> but it's yes, that she's, I mean, that's one of the things I love about this dream sequence that the, when she she experiences it in full consciousness and clarity that it's like, oh yeah, the flaming building, that was kind of real. That was, yeah. you know, this this was the journey that I was taken on. And now I'm recognizing all these touch points and the painting above the mantle. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we haven't even touched on the fact that there are two sisters in this apartment that are notorious for having eaten babies. Yeah. Yes. Well, children, really. We don't know if they got an, an actual fresh baby, but totally yeah. the Trench sisters. <laughs> the Trench sisters. And that Rosemary wearing a gigantic Peter Pan collar uses Scrabble tiles to figure it all the fuck out. <laughs> That's the best. You know, I mean, that was, to this day, that is one of my favorite scenes in like any movie ever. Oh, yeah. There is something really claustrophobic about this movie and the way that it's I think it has to do with the way that it's shot we were talking before about kind of seeing little hearing or seeing little clues from Mm -hmm. another room Mm -hmm. and it kind of gives you this feeling that you're you're not going anywhere like you're in the living room you have limited sight line that's so true and you feel like your feet are bolted to the floor and it does the thing that I think I don't know where Scorsese learned this from specifically but it's such a big part of Taxi Driver where like we want to lean yes based on the shot we're given to get the angle to see what's going on right you're you're not getting the full information and that yeah. is that's true for rosemary's understanding of the situation she finds herself in right she's kind of poking around in in closets in different parts of the apartment and indeed of her own life her own lived experience looking for clues and not being able to see the whole thing yeah i love how we are forced into identification with her in both the book and the movie, which again are extremely similar and how it's like, we're living really now in the era of like outsized, like strong female protagonists. And 
something we've talked about a bit. We talked about this in Die Hard and about Bonnie Bedelia's character, how like it's very refreshing to see a woman in a movie who's like, has the tool set that makes sense for her based on the position that she's been allowed mm -hmm. to have in society, mm -hmm. but is like operating very intelligently within that. Right. Right. So, Alex. Yes, Sarah. We know that Satan has a baby in this movie <laughs> and then fucking bounces like the deadbeat dad he is. <laughs> yes. But who is the daddy? Oh, that's a great hmm. question. Wow. I just don't know. <laughs> I mean, the most evident answer is Hutch, who ends up getting himself in trouble by being a nerd. Like he's always happens. <laughs> he's like, hey, well, guess what? I went down to the old library and looked into some microfiche and found out that this apartment is bad. Um, I'll go with Hutch. I'll go with Hutch, mm. the old nerd who Guy writes off as being someone who's just addicted to telling everybody around him about the potential horrors, largely because Guy is one of the horrors. Mm -hmm. Like Hutch is like a goth. Hutch is a goth. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's a professional crepe hanger. Hutch is a goth. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't know how we're defining daddy, but I would say it's probably Roman for me. Oh, wow. Mm. Tell me. Right? Because think about this. So Roman, of the two of them, of Minnie and Roman, Minnie, I have the sense, is kind of a technocrat. Like, she's kind of about making it happen. She's the, the drink, the cake, mm -hmm. the, you know, spying on Rosemary, installing self with her knitting, mm -hmm. following her around. You know, she's kind of keeping tabs on things. She's the Vladimir Putin of this operation. <laughs> she, exactly. She's, she's making it happen. Whereas the ideologue, and you really get this in the final scene when, you know, there are little clues like a New Year's Eve, you know, he declares 1966 the year one. And then in a kind of reprise of that in their apartment, he's saying, you know, he'll overthrow the mighty and redeem the, you know, the, what is it, the down trodden or the overlooked or something that he's a real he's a true believer he's mm -hmm. i mean it's like listening to a sermon basically yeah. it's like he, you know he is like the priest of this whole endeavor and kind of has the courage of his convictions he absolutely believes that this quote-unquote religion is designed to redeem the people who have the short end of the stick and that's righteous and you know blah 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 well and yeah and also like just to drop this in at the very end nothing they say about their satanism seems bad they're like right satan's baby will rise up and free the oppressed and it's like all right sounds fine yeah it sounds great <laughs> yeah it sounds actually similar to another religion I've heard of. He has claws, but he seems like a really great guy. Well, and because Satan, like, Satan is a fallen angel, right? He's not mm -hmm. purely a kind of, you know, plainly malign entity. I mean, he is a malign entity, but he is one of God's angels. And his name from the Hebrew means the adversary, right? Hasatan mm -hmm. means, means the adversary. And it's this kind of the the guy who prosecutes. And I think that's some, that complexity that he's a good guy who went bad. That's different from just being bad. Right. Cause there's this idea that maybe he could come back to being good. Look at you defending Satan. Look at me. You're like, well, he's bad, but he's not evil, he, but he's misunderstood. I met him at the candy store. <laughs> Turn around and smile to me. You got the picture. Yes, we see. Leader of the pack. 
Troom room. He's exactly. He's yeah. You know what I mean? It's like he's just. It's 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 misunderstood. So I think he's. Uh, we're, listen, we're all doing our best, right? I, I love that we learned that Sarah loves Satan. I also love Satan. We both love Satan. That's great. Hail Satan. No, I agree. I I do think that like Roman has. You know, I disagree with his methods. This is a very evil plot. For sure. <laughs> yeah, but evil for what it says to Rosemary, not evil for, you know, the larger goal, as far as I can tell. And yes, I love his little earring. And isn't that true of so many things that the byproduct of an endeavor is, well, it sure sucks for women. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, it's for, but it's for the greater good. But what about, who cares? Who cares about women? Yeah. Yes. And my daddy... Well, is of course Ira Levin, the daddy of this book, a writer who Love. I think Beautiful. just found the true rot at the heart of the apple <laughs> and showed it to us and that we absorbed these stories as stories about Satanists and robots. And really, they were about men and women the whole time. Boy, isn't that the truth? I love it. Sarah Archer, where can people find you? You can find me at sarah-archer.com. That has most of my back catalog of writing or on Twitter at Sarcher. And there's a um, there are some books, you know, Mid-Century Christmas and Mid-Century Kitchen, Catland, The Soft Power of Cat Culture in Japan, and perhaps more to come. Great. Sarah, this has been so fun. Thank you so much. So fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I, you guys are, you guys are good. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. (laughs) Take care, Sarah. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you to Sarah Archer for joining us for this conversation. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make this episode sound so sweet. We really appreciate you, Lesh. Thanks to you for listening to the episode. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. If that is a thing that you do, we appreciate that. Thank you for finding us on Twitter and on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod and just saying hello. We love to hear from you. I'm not entirely sure which episode is coming up next, um, so keep an eye on social media (laughs) for that. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's waiting for Guffman, but we'll know for sure very soon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being with us. You, my friend, are good.